Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and Expeditia, a four-part specialist series. What you've just been listening to is a group of women in Zahidi doing a hedja, which is a circle dance, and then singing and performing some music with a mouth harp recorded on location by Charlie Walker. In 2022, Charlie touched down in Siberia to undertake a long Arctic expedition. Three days later, Russia invaded Ukraine. Most journalists left the country, and so did most of the tourists. Charlie decided to stay, but before we get into that, you'll need some context. Earlier in 2022, I saw that Charlie was going on an expedition to a remote corner of Siberia, and I had an idea. It was something that had been brewing in my head for a long time, I just hadn't come across an expedition that would work with the concept. So I contacted him and asked him if he fancied taking an audio recorder with him and keeping a diary. In my head, the idea was to send him with a list of questions to answer at certain moments throughout the trip, and then interview him about it when he got back, before cutting it all together to interweave the sit-down interview with the field recordings. Charlie kept his part of the deal better than I'd ever imagined he would or could, and recorded regularly, and as you'll find out, often under difficult or dangerous circumstances. In the end, I spoke with Charlie in the studio for over three hours. So much had happened, and a lot of it unexpectedly. The end result is an adventurous story of one man's expedition, but really it's so much more than that. Charlie's journey tells the story of the changing way of life for Siberian reindeer herders, but for me, most interestingly, this story is a real-life, on-the-ground account of what a remote part of Russia feels like in the weeks and months following Putin's invasion of Ukraine. As I've mentioned, this series is split into four parts. The first one, this one, is an abridged version of the full story of what happened to Charlie in Russia in spring 2022. Okay. Over to Charlie Walker. So I think it's important to provide us with some context on your background, which, having reread your bio and Wikipedia and all those things this morning, is extensive and we could do an hour or two on that, but... Can you please introduce yourself and tell me what you do and what you have done? Sure. Um, my name is Charlie Walker. I am a, I usually prefer to say writer, but other places, possibly including my website, say adventurer. Some people say explorer. That's a whole different discussion that I'm aware you've had on your podcast half a dozen times at least, so we, we needn't bother with that. 
because all opinions have been covered. Um, for the last, what are we looking at now, 12 or so years, I've been heading off on different journeys. This started in uh, probably increasingly quite a sort of rite of passage fashion with a long bike ride. Um, so almost exactly 12 years ago, actually, the 1st of July 2010, I set off on a sort of secondhand old 100-pound bicycle and spent the following four and a half years uh, pedaling across Europe, Asia, and Africa, about 43,000-something hundred miles, 70,000 kilometers it came out as, um, through 60-odd countries. And that was uh, just a sort of a big, formative, uh, I suppose, life-changing journey that I guess pulled me out of my little sort of, you know, southwest England bubble that I'd grown up in. Um, after I came back from that journey, I had 30 pounds left, which didn't particularly last beyond my homecoming party. Um, so I got the first job I could find, which was selling luxury holidays to China, um, which was slight anathema to the sort of, you know, two pound a day budget, living in a tent, cooking meals and washing and cooking meals on a stove and washing in puddles journey that I've been on for my sort of entire adult life by that point. So I didn't last long there and eventually made the leap to being an adventurer. Uh, so I started giving, um, uh, I started doing public speaking. I started writing a book and started planning the next journey. Uh, the, the next expedition was an eight-month-long journey traveling the length of the sort of perceived or supposed Europe-Asia border. But as we both know from looking at a map, Eurasia is very clearly one continent. Um, so there was a slight agenda to that journey. It was conceived in the run-up to um, the Brexit referendum and uh, Trump's election, um, his 2016 campaign, uh, both of which played heavily on the idea of cultural or even continental identity. And um, I wanted to travel the length of that border to essentially, in a long-winded way, build a case for that border being irrelevant, defunct, and entirely human, you know, man-made, as are all you know, political borders. Mountain ranges are, of course, slightly different, etc., um, so that was eight months skiing, uh, starting off up on the Arctic coast uh, in northern Russia, skiing south through the Ural Mountains for about three months, then uh, paddling for 1,500 miles down the Ural River from the southern foothills of the Urals to the Caspian Sea, and then cycling from the Caspian uh, through the Caucasus along northern Turkey to Istanbul. Uh, the journey that came next was a two-month um, sort of crossing of Papua New Guinea, climbing some mountains, um, hiking through the highlands, and then paddling down the Sepik River, the longest river on the island. And then, what oh, came next? COVID came next. <laughs> um, so I was back out in Papua New Guinea when COVID sort of began, and I scrambled from quite a remote area of the highlands just a few weeks after arrival to get out and I, I believe I got the last or the second last flight off the island for about five months and indeed the last seat on it um, and then did a lot of sitting in my kitchen for quite a while I'm sure we're all familiar with that um, then went and climbed an unclimbed mountain in Kyrgyzstan last year which was fun and then earlier this year went to Russia but I'm sure we'll get on to that long-winded answer huh 
No, that's good. I'm sure we'll get onto that. I'd say that's a pretty succinct answer given uh, where we could go. So before we get into Russia, can we talk about the Southwest bubble? What was that like? Um, well, I grew up in the Chalk Valley in Wiltshire, just on the sort of Wiltshire-Dorset border. Um, small village, uh, I think about 350 people or so. Um, when I was born, there was a pub, but that closed about a month later. When I was growing up, there was a village shop slash post office, but that closed when I was about 10. Um, when I did um, a geography project aged about 12, I, had, I did a village survey because that was the only thing available to me living in a village. Um, and I found that the average age in the village was 65. Um, it's changed quite a lot since then. Now I think some younger people have moved in and it re the, the valley recently became... I think last year it was voted as sort of one of Britain's more livable places in a sort of, you know, tea on the cricket ground with the vicar type sense. Um, it was lovely. It was really, really nice. I've got three siblings. My dad um, lived in the village when he was a child and moved back to it the minute he could. Um, I, you know, I, the village feels very much part of me, I suppose. But that said, it is a very small part of the world and... I was always quite aware of that, I think. And I think living in quite such a admittedly idyllic but homogenous place uh, probably fueled my desire to cast off and have a little scout around. Yeah. And, I mean, you've obviously guessed where I'm going, but then what was the access point that made you say, I'm going now? And rather than, you know, I'm going to go and climb some Munros or nip off to France for a while, getting a bike and going a long way is quite a big thing. The, the, the true answer to this is not what I would nowadays want to say, but I'll be honest with you, given that I have written this in a book. <laughs> but um, the, the way I phrased it, admittedly quite wankily in my book, was that I was a, a young man wanting to slay dragons in a post-dragon age. I think, you know, 100 years ago, I would have, you know, gone off to join the army in India or the... I guess the colonial service or something, just to get you know get somewhere else, be somewhere different, see some of the world. Because I, you know, I grew up in a pretty you know, relatively comfortable middle class background and quite a sort of swaddled upbringing. Um, and I was you know outside and outdoors all the time, but I didn't grow up uh, climbing mountains or you know my parents weren't outdoorsy. I never really went, or we certainly never went camping. Um, I started the Duke of Edinburgh Bronze Award, but got kicked off for stealing some alcohol on my first expedition, <laughs> one night and 15 miles, um, and then didn't spend a night in a tent for years after that. So I think by the time I left school and started studying at university, there was this kind of itch that had been growing, and, and it took me a while to figure out exactly what it was. And as soon as I found kind of travel, um, I... And, and I suppose the sort of the, the rough and tumble dirtbag end of travel and getting off the beaten path, uh, I, it clicked. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wasn't expecting that as an answer, which is nice in a way. We'll talk afterwards about what you were expecting. <laughs> I've interviewed a lot of people. <laughs> um, so I guess what we should probably do as much as it's tempting to go into the back catalogue and really interview you about, you know, your various trips, is actually just have a conversation about Russia. Sure. And I think that should start with 
the inspiration and the intention for the journey and what you wanted to achieve personally, but also altruistically or journalistically, etc. Okay. Um, well, when in I've been interested in Russia for a long time, and I suppose more broadly in the former Soviet Union, um, and that's definitely to some extent a morbid curiosity. It's such a such an incredibly dark chapter of human history and the fact that things were able to get like that in the 20th century is to me astounding and fascinating and there's i shouldn't pontificate too much on this point but there's like i think there's still lessons to be learned particularly now as, as russia lurches back into the same state um but i I think that was tied in with this interest in just the vastness of Russia and its wilderness. You know, Russia has uh, 144, I think, million people, so only a little more than double the UK's population, two, you know, less than two Germanys. But the size of Russia, the surface area of Russia, is the same as the surface area of Pluto, which was a more impressive fact when it used to be a planet, <laughs> as opposed to just an exoplanet or whatever it's now called. Um, and... You know, there are areas that are so massive and so empty. The most sparsely pop, uh, populated country on Earth is Mongolia. But the population density of Yakutia, where, where I went earlier this year, is one third of Mongolia. It's, it's a tiny bit smaller than the size of India. It's something like 96, 97% the size of India. But there's a million people. And more than a third of those live in the capital. Um, but I suppose going back a little bit again, back when I was in the Ural Mountains in Russia five years ago, um, one day, uh, sort of up on the tundra in the north, early on, um, the two of us were sort of skiing along in a howling, you know, we, we skied into wind for three months. It was, it wasn't a great trip. To me. <laughs> I mean, it was type two fun. Um, and suddenly this snowmobile just sort of zoomed up out of nowhere. And on it were these two men dressed head to toe in reindeer furs. And they were Nenets. Uh, which is one of the sort of larger groups of, if not the, yeah, one of the larger groups of reindeer herders that live across the kind of the Arctic belt of um, Eurasia and North America. And we spoke to them in my crap halting Russian for 10, 15 minutes. That was about it. And then and then they zoomed off. But the the intense remoteness of where they lived, you know, we, to get to our start line, we had been given a lift for 100 miles in a tank um, by some madman who was going to try and fa trade fish with some remote group living on the coast somewhere. Um, and we thought that we wouldn't see anyone for the next you know, three weeks or so. And suddenly these two guys just appeared. And it really stayed with me, the, the, the amazing remoteness of these people. And, you know, I sort of latterly learned that the reindeer has for uh, a few thousand years been this incredible tool, this key to living in the world's most hostile environments. Um, you know, you can wear them for warmth, you can ride them for transport, you can get them to pull things, to carry things, uh, you can herd them in a sort of semi-wild, semi-feral state. So you've got a moving larder, you can use their sinews for string, you know, they're, they're, every single part of them is useful in some respect, you can carve their bones into religious articles, um, much as you can, I suppose, with many animals, but the reindeer is sort of uniquely hardy and sort of domesticable to enough of an extent that they just 
enable this incredible feat of survival. And that's probably true nowhere more so than Yakutia, or as it's now known in Russia, Sakha Republic. Um, the the Sakha people, or formerly known as the Yakut people, sort of in the Russian parlance, are, uh, well, they live in the coldest place on earth. Um, the coldest recorded inhabited, the coldest recorded temperature in, a, in an inhabited place is, I always forget exactly, it's minus 67.8 degrees. Um, and yeah, surely it's been colder in the past. This yeah, records began in the 30s or something. And people lived there traditionally in teepees made of reindeer hide um, and survived in that and presumably also often died in that. And I was just sort of intrigued to see what their life was like now for the, the relatively few that still remain. <laughs> They, the reindeer here are, are kept for meat, um, and pitchin, the liver, is the prized cut of meat. Um, the, yeah, the meat and the fur is used, but they do um, once or twice a year have festivals. They had one just uh, about two weeks ago, ten days ago or so, which sadly I hadn't got here yet, so missed, but... Um, he showed me some footage on his phone of the, the races they have. So one is um, having teams of, I think, four reindeer uh, pulling sleds, and that's a race. Um, he came third this year in the, in the sled race. Um, but then another is um, individuals with one reindeer each being pulled on skis, and that looked absolutely manic, totally brutal. Um, they were all lined up on the start line, and then someone shouted, go. Um, and it reminded me a bit of, I think there's an episode of The Simpsons, or Family Guy, one or the other, where there's a little kind of um, cut to of a, a cat race. And there's a ready, set, go, or a gunshot. And then all the cats just dart off in entirely different directions. And it seemed a bit like that with the reindeer. There was a go, and each of them got a kind of a, um, a bit of a whip from the reins. And they all just veered into one another. They've all got antlers, and it looked absolutely brutal. Within about 100 metres, um, which I think is more or less the length of the race, uh, I'd say three quarters of the competitors were down, and spectators were running out onto the field to sort of check if they were OK. Um, so, yeah, that's the... I suppose that gives some uh, sense of how domesticated or not the uh, the tundra reindeer are up here. So off the back of that, I sort of built this idea to go to Yakutia um, and because I'm a sadist... No, a masochist. A masochist is an important difference. Yeah, this is very... I'm <laughs> not the marquee. Um, I wanted to, you know, I suppose to some extent experience the difficulty of those temperatures, albeit in modern materials and with a, <laughs> frankly, a tent that would be much less warm than a reindeer hide teepee, but uh, a bit more transportable. I wanted to go and do some sort of long hike, you know, experience those really cold temperatures and... Um, you know, try to reach or access some communities of reindeer herders. But 
because since the sort of late 20s, early 30s, they were largely all collectivized. And then throughout the Soviet era, reindeer herding became a uh, sort of state run. You know, they, there was the state farm and herders would manage, you know, a herd of, you know, a group of herders would have maybe 3,000 reindeer. Um, and they would have to look after them, but they were all owned by the state. And then slowly the herds became reprivatized. It's all very complicated. But the state of things today is there aren't many herders left, but there are still villages that were built by the Soviets in places where there used to just be nomadic peoples moving around. Um, and so there's these sort of vestiges of the Soviet machine, I suppose, that for a while, due to, I suppose, artificially um, maintained economics, supported a huge administration up in these you know, remote areas where you can't get to in spring or autumn because unless you fly because the only way in is on the rivers in summer when they're thawed or on the rivers in winter when they're frozen um and there's also you know crumbling industrial towns some of which are still inhabited barely some of which are totally abandoned uh and so i, I was just interested to see all of this the, the the remoteness the coldness the remains of a long-held reindeer herding culture um, so the plan was to walk along a river for a few hundred miles from somewhere inside Yakutia up to the north coast and then come home. And how long did you plan for that to take? And what did you intend to do whilst you were there outside of just walk? I had three months purely due to that being the longest visa I could get. Um, they Just shortly before I left, they started providing three-month tourist visas. Um, so I could get the correct visa, a tourist visa, rather than a, a business visa, which I had got in the past and been prosecuted for, for using while, tra while traveling as a tourist. Um, and with those three months, I would, you know, hike this route, but with the sort of excess time I had, you know, it wouldn't take all of the time to do the hike, I could stop in communities, get to know people, get my feet on the ground, l learn about it, um, with an open mind to learning about sort of anything and everything. I, it's sometimes quite hard to plan what you'll learn <laughs> before going somewhere. So I think it's best just to build time in and see what you find. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it that not everybody adopts, actually. You know, I think that whole let's just get there and see is, is more rare than we often think. Well, it, it makes funding harder to get because, um, you know, if you want to get some funds, a grant, sponsorship, whatever saying, yeah, I'm just going to go there and have a look around, doesn't really tick many boxes. Um, so, you know, besides uh, just wanting to see and learn whatever there was, get, get, you know, get a sense of the place, I also had uh, a, a sort of a secondary purpose, which, you know, I, I did and do care about, but was also convenient in um, convincing people to, to pay, <laughs> um, which was to see what effect, if any, climate change was having on uh, herders and just people in general living in this remote area. Um, particularly, there's been a few, I suppose, newspaper stories in the last 18 months that have uh, highlighted the effects of climate change in the Arctic. Um, so in summer 2020, uh, the highest ever rec Arctic recorded temperature on record, which was 39.8 or something, uh, was recorded in uh, Verkhoyansk, um, which is also where minus 60 
7.8 was recorded, you know, 80 years ago or so. Um, and when the island of Evia in Greece was burning last summer, um, at the same time, but relatively little reported in our media, at least in the MSM, um, were 6.6 million hectares of, of wildfires in Yakutia, which is, although they weren't all in one place, they were spread across the area, is the same size as Belgium. Yeah, I'm just on this empty ice row. My sled dragging along behind me. On my left, there's a big hill um, where all the trees are entirely stripped of branches and foliage. They're just a bunch of vertical matchsticks. Quite a lot of them have already fallen down. So it looks like that entire hillside had quite a... Uh, quite a bad burn last summer. So I was, you know, wondering what effect that, that would have on people there in general. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's quite a big story. Yes. Uh, and I, I don't think I'm necessarily the best person or best equipped to tell it, but to get a sense of it is something I could probably do. Yeah. And so it almost sounds like a cheap and easy question, but... I guess the next thing to ask you is what happened? Um, well, I was due to fly in early February and then got COVID, um, which was inconvenient. Um, I think I spoke to 25 public audiences in January, so 25 rooms full of people. It was probably the writing was on the wall. Anyway, I got COVID, pushed back my departure a little bit, flew out, arrived in Yakutia, Yakutsk rather, the capital city, uh, on the 21st of February. In a, um, the plane landed in a minus 40 degree whiteout. And then three days later, Russia invaded Ukraine and the world changed. But I was still there. And I had taken a lot of time and effort to put this trip together, to put in research, to raise funds, uh, and then just to get there. And I didn't want to just throw all that away. A lot of people, you know, myself included, with hindsight have questioned, surely the writing was on the wall. Why did you go when we saw 140 plus thousand Russian troops massing on the Ukrainian border and in Belarus as well? And the answer is if we look back at the news stories from then, everyone except US and UK intelligence <laughs> said, this is a bluff, this isn't going to happen. You know, he's just trying to wrangle, he being Putin, trying to wrangle further concessions out of NATO about Ukraine never joining and withdrawing troops from Estonia, Poland, whatever else. 
so I went and they invaded. And then the question is, do I carry on? Do I get on with my journey or do I leave? And I sort of asked that question repeatedly, but honestly, no part of me was actually considering leaving. It's not something particularly in my nature to sort of bow out unless forced to, which is to my advantage and my detriment at various times. So I got out and started hiking and slowly the situation in Russia continued to, the, the I suppose, state apparatus continued to sort of tighten and the encounters I had with people became increasingly challenging because I was a foreigner and a, whether I wanted to be or not a representative of Britain and the West and the other side, you know, the I suppose the liberal axis. And it, it made the journey very, very different. And quickly, whether I wanted it to or not, the war and the or the special operation, as it was called in Russia, saying war can get people imprisoned, the Spetsyalnaya Operatsia, um, just overshadowed everything. You know, my original purpose, my plans to just get to know about people and culture very quickly by, you know, without choice became plans because there was no other way of doing it, became plans to get to know about people and their opinion of this invasion, this war that isn't a war. Um, after three weeks, uh, I suppose just to fill in the blank there, three weeks of hiking along a frozen river, um, with the coldest temperature was, I think minus 48 degrees in my little tent, very good Fjall Raven tent, but still a tent. Um, after three weeks, I reached the first town. I passed through a couple of villages up to that point. And in that town, I was sort of questioned by the police and then um, given a fine for conducting journalism while travelling on a tourist visa. Uh, and that was tied in with the idea that I'd been asking provocative questions about Ukraine. I said, okay, you know, I got my boots on, got my coat on, we got in their car, we drove to the police station. Um, and then they started asking me, you know, what was I doing here in Ustkuya? I said, well, you know, we spoke about this yesterday. I'm a tourist. And they said, um, did you interview a man today? And I said, no. And they said, um, people reported you interviewed a man today. And I said, no, I didn't interview anyone. They said, did you talk to anyone? And I said, oh, um, you know, I walked around town, I went to a couple of shops. Oh, I did speak to one guy for maybe 10 minutes. Um, he showed me where the shops are. He pointed out the church. Um, he said, that's the cement factory there. Um, and then he left. And they said, uh, what was his name? Was it uh, Dima, uh, Genia, Sergei, Andre? I said, oh, I don't know. You, you know me, I don't remember names. Um, I hadn't remembered his name when they arrived today. I don't even remember the name of the two of them. And they said, okay, fine. Um, but they said, but you're a, uh, you're a journalist. You, you lied to us, so we have to give you a fine. This, so this is the crime I committed. 
the code. <laughs> no, not crime. It's administrative. Yeah. Which was and wasn't true, I suppose. It's very complicated, this idea of was I a journalist? Because to them, they, they found my website. And on my website, it says, you know, Charlie Walker is a travel writer who has been published on the BBC and the Sunday Times, the Daily Telegraph, blah, 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 blah. And that means I've written for papers and therefore I'm a journalist, even if I've been writing about my fine time in the mountains. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, they, they, they gave me this fine. It was all in Russian. Uh, it was quite hard to know exactly what they were accusing me of. And they found a couple of witnesses to sort of enforce their, their accusation. But, I mean, one of them I hadn't met. So that's, that's how it goes. <laughs> um, and it, it, it took a while to work out eventually that the fine was £20 and they weren't going to let me go unless I signed the paperwork and, and paid the fine. Um, so it, it didn't sink in straight away that I had signed a piece of paper of saying, yes, I'm a journalist and here's your £20. Um, not that I could pay it for another six weeks or so until I actually reached a bank. Um, but... They, they also, it, all the paperwork was in Russian. They got a guy to translate loosely into English who I had met before and had been speaking with and then they later got him to be a, they added him as another witness against me. But they made me sign the paperwork that was in Russian that had been vaguely translated and they made me sign it in Russian and they made me write in Russian. I speak and write in Russian and have read this in Russian and they wrote that down, almost like stenciled it for me to copy <laughs> <laughs> which was quite, you know, insane. Um, anyway, I was then allowed to go. So I thought, well, you know, that's that. I'll just get going. I headed back out into the wild, headed through some more villages, about one village a week. Uh, finally reached the coast at the north and then spent another two weeks hiking, uh, sort of, you know, tracing the coast, hiking over frozen sea ice under aurora borealis it was it was beautiful really really nice the hiking the the part of the journey that i went there for was 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 great i, I had a you know i had a good time and it's something that i increasingly want to kind of remember and uh because of things that came later you know i i don't want to lose sight of what was good about it and let that slip slip away but on arrival in tixi the port town where i was due to fly back south from um well, not on arrival, a couple of days after arrival, I was uh, I was arrested, taken to a hastily convened court at 9.30pm after several hours of the police once again sort of finding and fabricating witnesses um, and found guilty of the same charge, conducting tourism, uh, conducting journalism or travelling on a tourist visa, asking provocative questions about Ukraine and photographing military sites. Um... From there, I, I spent that night in a cell, which actually isn't my first night in a Russian jail cell, but um, was probably the more bleak one at 73 degrees north. The next day, I was flown back down to the cap, back, back down to Yakutsk with a, a bailiff as an escort. And on arrival in Yakutsk, not really knowing, I, I was told that I was getting another fine, 50 quid this time. And... Um, would be banned from Russia for five years and had to leave Russia. And again, nothing had been properly translated. They had a, an English teacher to translate for me, but after five hours of hanging around, she was fed up and more or less stopped translating. Everything was, you know, I, she'd 
read a sheet of you know a document a page long and then give me three sentences summarizing what it said and so a lot of details slipped by me among them were the fact that i would not just be getting on a flight and going home but i'd be put in a detention center for foreign citizens i.e a prison for foreigners in yakutsk um so i was on arrival in yakutsk i was taken there um had my possessions locked up in a locker had my belt and shoelaces taken away, was marched into a cell, the door locked shut behind me. And initially was told, yeah, this will be a few days and then they'll fly you home. And after a few days, they said, you should probably get a lawyer. So with difficulty, we, and when I say we, I mean really not me, my fantastic girlfriend who sort of coordinated things from home because I had quite limited access to my phone, um, arranged a lawyer to come and launch or lodge an appeal on my behalf, which um, it wasn't appealing the decision of the court, you know, the the, the charges, the offences. It was appealing the decision to forcibly deport me, as they call it, so a state deportation, i.e. you wait in a prison until they get around to deporting you. And instead, it was appealing for me to be allowed to self-deport, i.e. book a flight and go home. And... After two weeks of not going outside um, and also being dragged in front of a camera on state TV to answer for my offences without warning in cuffs, um, after two weeks, I was taken to the courthouse, um, which was my first, you know, just getting from the prison door into the vehicle and then from the vehicle into the courthouse at the other end was my first bit of being outdoors since, um, you yeah, arriving, which was nice. But I was in two pairs of handcuffs. Um, they cuffed my hands and then they further cuffed me to a um, policeman with a taser. And on the other side was another policeman with another taser. And they were both kids. They were 26, 27. Nice enough guys. Or rather, they would have been if, they, you know, if their job hadn't required them to be sort of assholes. So I was cuffed. It, it's really stuck in my mind, the, the memory of walking down the corridor in the courthouse with this... I'd lost loads of weight while hiking and... Um, my jeans were far too big for me by this point, but I was, still wasn't allowed a belt or shoelaces. So I was wearing these massive, like, you know, cold weather hiking boots with the tongue, you know, the sort of foot long tongues lolling out the front. And my trousers are falling down and my hands are cuffed together and sort of dragged off to one side because they're cuffed to another man who's not making much effort to give me any sort of, you know, leverage. And I'm having to do this kind of squatting, wide kneed walk to stop my trousers from falling down. Um, anyway, the judge. Uh, sort of cast his eye over the papers for two minutes and said, no, your offences are too serious, rejected. Um, and I'm pretty sure he'd just been told to say that. I don't think he particularly had much say in the matter. So it was back into the prison, and at that point I thought, well, am I ever going to get out of here? Um, there was no indication of when I would go. It seemed now from this point there was nothing I could do or anyone could do on my behalf to um, expedite things. And it had been in the back of my mind throughout this whole experience. Well, two things, I suppose. The first was that um, my uh, two weeks or 10 days after the invasion of Ukraine, Russia passed a new law um, implementing a maximum 15-year jail sentence for um, journalists spreading fake news about the military, in inverted commas, fake news, i.e. for anyone reporting that there's a war or talking about Ukraine or saying anything that strays from the bonkers state line of propaganda about Nazism in Ukraine, 
or about widespread, you know, um, narcissism. Um, and they had accused me of being a journalist and taking photographs of military sites and asking provocative questions about Ukraine. So the the ingredients were all there. And the more I, you know, the longer I was stuck in this place, the more I worried that some, you know, ambitious apparatchik is going to decide to put two and two together and make six and that I might get a 15-year sentence and that I, as a British citizen, could be, as sadly, some of these um, British Ukrainian dual nationals who have been arrested at the Azov Steelworks um, have now, I mean, they've been sentenced to death and I presume and hope that they won't be executed or murdered, frankly, um, but will be used as bargaining chips to get some really bad people freed. And, uh, you know, I could be an equally useful sort of, you know, casino chip for the um, cowboys running Russia. Um, so that, the evening after that appeal, that failed appeal was probably the lowest point. Um, anyway, about two weeks later, quite suddenly... Um, I was told, and this was th through some, um, you know, sort of gentle pressure exerted by my lawyer, my Russian lawyer, um, my partner, um, and the, the foreign office or the British embassy in Moscow to whatever extent they could, which was small. You know, the, there's, there's very little leverage in Russia for, for Britain anymore. Um, I was suddenly told that we are deporting three other people to Central Asia, uh, in a couple of days and if you can get flights to coincide with theirs uh, you can be deported too um, usually the way it works is that the state arranges everything they pay for everything you're not allowed to do anything but I was told that you know sort of sooner than would have happened otherwise if I got flights to coincide it would work and it's not just a case of getting on a flight and leaving the country for one, no Russian airlines are allowed to Europe, so you've got to go via a third country. But for two, Yakutsk it doesn't have an international airport. It used to, in fact. Um, but you've got to get to Moscow first. And because you're still in the country, they can't just let you go freely because you're under arrest and you, you know, you're essentially a criminal. So they've got to get you in handcuffs and get you know, uh, uniformed bailiffs to escort you. Uh, so we managed to get flights. And when I say we, again, not me, um, my, my uh, you know, my brilliant sort of, you know, support team, I guess, my girlfriend, uh, managed to get the correct flights. And me and these three other men were flown with five guards uh, in cuffs to Moscow um, from where I thought, you know, I'll just be, I'll be put through security and then I'll be, although I'm technically still in Russia, I'm through security and, and you yeah, know, life's good again. But in... Um, Domodedovo Airport in Moscow. Where we were put into a small room to await check-in for our respective flights. The other guys were Armenian, Uzbek, and Kyrgyz. Um, and when my check-in came, uh, I went and checked in. Again, escorted, you know, you know held. And then a, a two-person SWAT team escorted me through customs. And then a whole sort of gang of police and SWAT and a couple of guys in plain clothes escorted me to immigration. But they took me to a different channel of immigration. And my phone was finally handed back to me at that point. And so I sent a you know, text to my partner saying, uh, like, I've got my phone back. I'm through immigration. It's all good now. Uh, and then I was taken into another room and six police officers just gave me 
the going over with a fine tooth comb. They've been given, they didn't know who I was, but they've been given, a, you know, a wad of documents about me. And suddenly they had me and my baggage and my phone that they took and just started going through everything. I said earlier that there were two things that I was worried about in the back of my mind. The second was the fact that for a podcast, <laughs> for you, for this podcast, I had been recording on a dictaphone throughout the journey, um, chats with other people, my own thoughts and reflections on what I was doing, where I was, what was going on. And that inevitably became quite political because the main thing that was happening in the foremost forefront of everyone's minds, myself included, was this kind of, you know, teetering slide towards World War Three or a new Cold War. And I had um, f- filled a couple of micro SD cards and then hidden them in because, you know, I had to get them out somehow. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 I don't think I could hold them up with me for that long. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I mean, the prison diet wasn't that full of fiber, but uh, it would have been a challenge. Um, I had unscrewed a, a, an adapter plug, a sort of you know, UK to Russian or European adapter plug. I'd unscrewed one of those and then folded them up in little bits of white paper and hidden them inside. They were quite subtle. But then there was a third one that when I was arrested in Tixie up on the north coast and then was taken back to where I was staying to pack everything up with police watching me, that SD, micro SD card, which had had photographs of every page of my journal taken with a GoPro uh, because I was worried my journal would be taken away from me or I'd have to discard it at some point. Um, That had just been out on the desk and uh, with no other way of hiding it, the only thing I could think to do was right next to it was a head torch with one of those sort of hinge joints that, you know, you can tilt it forward so you can see what you're doing when you're lighting a stove or whatever. And I just slipped it in the hinge, snapped it shut and put a rubber band around the whole torch with the strap so it just looked like it was kind of trussed up for storage. And from that point onwards, I I was never left unattended with all my belongings. So they were in a locker in police custody for the amount of time I was in, for the entire time I was in prison. And then at the airport, suddenly my bag that I had not been able to organize or, you know, I hadn't been able to take one of these cards and slip them in my, you know, that little, um, what do you call it, the little sort of condom pocket in the jeans, the jeans, you know, trousers. Um, I hadn't been able to sort of further or better hide it. And suddenly all my belongings were once again, because this happened when I was in prison, being laid out on a table, being gone through. And more alarmingly, for the first time, one of the police had got hold of my diary, which was just a notebook that I'd written a daily journal. But again, with lots of thoughts about what's going on when I was in prison when they were checking me in I slipped it in my trousers and got it into the cell where I basically hid it among my you know scant items of clothing and the books that I was later allowed to be delivered um in in plain sight and when the police came to search through my bags the things that were in my cell weren't looked at I mean the cell was essentially tossed every morning they looked through everything looking for weapons or drugs but they weren't like scanning through books um but suddenly an English-speaking guard was reading my journal that I thankfully had thought to sort of you know, redact, censor with lots of scribbly back, black lines in, um, you know, during my time in prison. But, for, you know, it, it was... I'd, I'd done, you know, day one, 21st of February, arrived in Yakutsk, et cetera, et cetera. And then day three, 24th of February, or day four, whatever it was, 24th of February, uh, <laughs> block capitals, Russia invades Ukraine. And thankfully, you know, I'd scribbled that out and loads of other things. But suddenly they had this thing and they were going through it, reading it in in great detail. And 
they were looking through my phone, they were going through all my messages. And I found out later that my girlfriend, who had just had a message saying, it's all good, I'm through security, and I've just got to wait for my flight in 90 minutes, was sending me messages, and they were being read and not responded to. And then she was calling me, and it was just being call rejected, call rejected. So she was aware that I didn't have possession of my phone and suddenly I was non-responsive at this last hurdle. But now I was in Moscow, which felt more serious. You know, Yakutsk, one of the reasons I felt emboldened to stay out in Russia and continue doing my journey was I was just so geographically remote from what was happening in Moscow or Kiev. Uh, you know, I was as far from Kiev as I was from Vancouver or as close to. Uh, so it just felt like it was, you know, it was a half a continent away and, you know, that distance somehow would be a placating factor. Um, but now I was in Moscow, the sort of seat of madness, <laughs> seat of power, mad power. Um, and, you know, this seems like a much more likely place for me to sort of end up with the full whack of, you know, what could happen to me. And so time went on. They, were go they went back through all my photos on my phone for years and years and years. Um, and eventually... They, they, came, they asked me about a load of questions. And in my passport, the visas, they're like, why have you been to Afghanistan? Why have you been to Iraq? Why have you been to Iran? They, you know, they were very, I suppose, understandably, when I go to America, it's quite similar, suspicious about all the places I'd been. And then they found a picture of me um, in the desert outside Herat in Afghanistan wearing a sort of, you know, a headscarf as a turban, essentially, with a massive beard, and an AK-47 just kind of posing like a prat in the desert. And that picture had been taken very innocently. I'd just been cycling past an Afghan National Army roadblock, and one of the soldiers said, oh, come and have some tea, and oh, let's take some pictures. So I have, you know, equivalent pictures of him with his gun. It was They were both his gun. I, I wasn't traveling with an AK. I tend not to. Um, and then, you know, they saw this and then got very, you know, concerned and quite excited, you know, and they were reading through the journal, they, they, they started going through the, um, the so like I speak some Russian, but I use uh, translation apps, the, the sort of the Apple and the Google translation apps quite a lot on this journey because that way you can get whole paragraphs and it's convenient because if someone says something important, you can sort of screenshot it and deal with it, write it down later or whatever. Um, but they also store the last bunch of translations um, and they clearly knew this. So they started going through the old translations and one of them, uh, he had said, uh, this Russian guy in a uniform from some place that uh, I can't divulge had said, um, I'm, you know, for me personally, I'm ashamed of Russia right now. I'm, no, not I'm ashamed of Russia. I'm ashamed of my country right now, crucially. Um, and uh, this translation was on there. And the policeman in the airport saw this and he said, and I, he pulled it up, he showed it to me. I was like, oh, shit. And he said... Um, why would you be ashamed of your country? And I, I sort of, you know, seemed to, uh, heaved a great sigh of relief and said, well, you know, I think the prime minister is kind of veering towards, you know, destroying our democracy. And I was able to speak perfectly openly and honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and he said, oh, okay. And then they carried on looking. But this process went on and on. And I was getting more and more worried. And they, they, all my possessions were out. And they were looking through stuff. And this loose SD card, you know, could just fall out at any point. And the plug adapter was also on the table there. And if they found, I knew that if they found that little hidden SD card, that, you know, wh whether it is or not is a different question. But it certainly looks like, you know, spycraft. You know, this, this is espionage. Or at the very least, you know, um, uh, illicit you know, subtle journalism. 
even though it was just pictures of the diary that they were holding in their hands. Um, and so, you know, my, I think that was probably the most scared I ever was, especially as I was so close to that final hurdle, you know, like you just got to get out. So it's like when you're running home, you need a pee, and then, you know, 100 yards from home is probably the time you're most likely to have to pee in a bush. But um, the, the time of my flight was ticking closer and closer, and I was getting more and more energy. I was like, guys, I've got to, you know, I've got to, I've got to go. Um, and eventually, with just, you know, single minutes to go, they said, right, pack everything up. And they, they'd, they'd asked me to delete every photo on my camera and my phone, which I sort of gently resisted because, you know, the, these things matter to me. But also, you know, having gone on this journey that had gone so catastrophically wrong, it'd be nice to have some sort of, you know, record of memories of the bits that went well. Obviously, I wasn't taking pictures in prison. Um, and they said, pack everything up. And then we, I was, I was uh, accompanied at a run through the airport, through the gate, onto the plane. The door closed behind me. Uh, and then the uh, flight took off um, en route out to Dubai and I burst into tears for the first time. It's actually a great finale to what is, people might be surprised to hear the short version of the story because I was going to bring up the SD cards at the end because that now forms what is the first time I've ever done this, the next episodes of this little mini-series. And I think it's probably best if we just leave it there and call that episode one. Okay, it's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Expeditia, a four-part specialist series. For more information on the podcast, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced and edited by Orla Omori. If you want to get in touch, you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or you can get in touch on Instagram where you'll find us at The Adventure Podcast. And if you want to leave us a review, please do leave an honest review on iTunes. They make the world of difference when we're trying to access new audiences.